Greetings, dear listener. Welcome back to Garmology. I'm your host, Nick Johannesson. Fresh episode for you today, and it's one I've personally been looking forward to for a while. Before we get into the conversation, though, I would just like to give a heartfelt thank you for the wonderful recent reviews on Apple Podcast. If I can just give you an example. For those who like honest chat about clothes and stuff and have more than a passing interest in tweed, wool and niche producers, then please listen to this. Fun and informative at the same time, Nick lets the guests speak, and as a result, the listener gets a treat every time a new recording is released. Truly, feedback like this really boosts my motivation. Thank you, Quarrymeister. Also, thanks to those that support the podcast on Patreon. means a lot. Link in the show notes in case you'd like to support or buy a coffee. If you have a suggestion or dream guest, do get in touch and I'll see what I can do email address mentioned at the end of the show. So let's get into it. We're off to St. Louis, Missouri to chat with one of my favourite podcasters. Like I said, this is a treat for me and I hope it's a treat for you as well. Let's go. Hi, and welcome to another episode of uh, Gomology, a podcast about clothes and stuff. I almost said hi and welcome to an episode of Blamo because today is uh, a bit of a special day for me today. Um, you know how you listen to a podcast for so long that you feel you know the host? Well, today's guest is very much like that for me, because I've got the host of Blamo here. Jeremy, quick intro. Hey, how you doing? Great to be here. I'm good. How are you? I'm all right. I'm all right. Little, uh, little under the weather right now, but, uh, but hanging in there just fine. Now, what the viewers can't see, but I can see, is that you're also sitting there wearing a down jacket. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's um, it's cold in my uh, in my basement. Um, I mean, I have heat and stuff, but it's very it's been very very cold in the Midwest of the U.S. So, so specifically, yeah, I'm four layers, <laughs> four layers. So specifically, yeah. where are you? Like oh, I'm in I'm in St. Louis, Missouri. So it's a place no one really cares about or pays attention to outside of the U.S. because it's just smack dab in the middle of the U.S. Um, but yeah, I'm in here in my basement, uh, my unfortunately unkept office uh, that I share with my wife. <laughs> okay, and it's cold outside, I imagine, snowy. Yeah, it's um, so it feels like like the the wind temp right now is is negative eighteen. So I, I don't know what, what's negative eighteen, and uh, it's neg it's almost negative thirty Celsius. Ooh, so. that is. Uh... Yeah, it's a bit colder than here right now. So uh, oh, you're yeah. allowed the down jacket where we had Wait. minus 22C yesterday morning, I think. Ugh. And also a ton of snow. Oh, yeah, we haven't so, had much um, snow. I mean, it's it's like we get a dusting, but um, yeah, it's just cold wind. So lots of lots of face creams and uh, and, and heavy coats inside, no matter how, <laughs> how much I try to heat my house. You know, it's just still cold down here. <clears throat> excuse me yeah now let's get started at the start shall we um sure i mean what, what is your background jeremy i mean i only My know background. you from blamo but i mean you've been doing stuff for ages i mean out of yeah. high school what was your big dream out of high school yeah um my big dream was to play music and uh to be to be a musician and i was more or less a failing musician for <laughs> for uh i don't know five six years and um it was fine 
you know, I mean, I moved to New York in 2004 and uh, specifically to play music. So, you know, I was young and dumb and had, you know, didn't have a full understanding or idea of what New York looked like or, or what just adulthood looked like. I mean, because I think I, I was 18, 18, like turning 19 or so when, when I moved out there. And, um, uh, but yeah, the plan was to play music. And I tried doing that for a while. And, you know, you, you, you get your, your sort of odd jobs here and there. I worked for American Apparel. I don't know if you remember that place. Okay, uh, yeah. For a tiny bit. Uh, worked at Starbucks. Uh, you know, your standard sort of run-of-the-mill job sort of thing, you know, outside of waiting tables, just like whatever you could to get by. Meanwhile, you know, trying to meet friends and play music. And uh, um, it didn't really work. I mean, you know, we had toured for a bit and we, we released some records. and um, But along the way, I mean, you know, to kind of abridge this a bit, um, you meet other people in the industry and other musicians. And um, I'd met a guy named Paul Banks from this band called Interpol, whom I loved. And he was... Uh, he was kind of helping me out in terms of this is like the MySpace era. So I remember meeting him and then sending him some emails and messages, you know, like we would each email each other's hotmail account and I was trying to send him songs, which you couldn't really send. So I would like try to direct him to my MySpace page and, you know, and here's the thing. I don't think he knew the impact he had on me, you know, cause it's not like we were best friends in any way, shape or form. I want to be very, very clear. Um, but he was just kind of giving me good feedback. And then he was like, hey, you know what? You should go work at Beggars. And he was referring to the Beggars group, which was um, Martin Mill's sort of indie record label conglomerate. And that uh, that was Matador Records, Rough Trade, 4AD, uh, oh, Beggars Banquet recording. So many records from them. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, what else was on there? XL Recordings, so which was Richard Russell's um, label. <clears throat> And he's like, you should go work there. And in my head, I was like, oh, this guy's smart. He he wants me to go work there so I can give him my demo so I can get signed by him. I was like, he's so smart. You know, and he was just like, dude, you know, like, because, I mean, it's hard to get by even when you're just living off of slices of pizza in a $300 a month, you know, tiny hole in the wall room in the Lower East Side, which is now unheard of. But um, I went and got a job there. There was a job opening, and it was like digital, like tech stuff. So I was, you know, in any sort of small company, you kind of wear a lot of hats. So I was doing mostly like IT stuff, you know, where it was like helping people with emails. And, and I'd, I had worked at the Apple Store, um, you know, when this is when there was only two, three Apple Stores in the United States, you know. Um, and I worked there for a bit, and it was like the best job I ever had by leaps and bounds. It still is probably the best job I ever had because it was very much, I think, you know, it was run by a British gentleman, Mr. Martin Mills. And um, he, just how they valued people and employees and where you wanted to go in your life and your career and how, you know, I wasn't damned to the position that I was in. And I think traditionally in previous American jobs I had had, you know, and, and by the way, I'm still a child, more or less. You know, I'm in my, my early to mid-20s. 
um, you could kind of go where you wanted to go, where you weren't just like, well, sorry, you were hired as the the secretary. I'm making that up. And so you only do this. We don't want any yeah. other input. You know, there would be times where you were had these kind of all hands meetings and, you know, people got to weigh in on input and you had reviews where you could kind of talk about how you wanted to grow. And, and you know, and it's funny because I'm sure as anyone hears this, they're going to be like, oh, yeah, we have that stuff in America. But it's like, well, how often is the action taken for you to, you know, leap outside of that career? I think, unfortunately, in, in many positions, and this is now from the experience I have now, people are never really viewed outside of what they're hired as. Um, and so, you know, working at Beggars was just like the greatest gift that could ever happen to me. You know, I did give them my demo, which was funny. And <laughs> they were just like, what? What do you do? I remember I gave it to Simon Holiday, who's like the legendary A&R guy of 4AD. And he was like, this is good. What are you doing? And I was like, oh, I'm, you know. And he was like, why aren't you touring? And I was like, well, it's hard. And he's like, yeah. And I was like, um, uh, you know, and so we, I kept trying to play and tour and, you know, we'd play DC or Boston or wherever, Philadelphia, like cl closer places from New York. And I'd go and I'd do that. <clears throat> Excuse me. And, um, meanwhile, still trying to work. Um, but I, I, you know, at the time, all of a sudden I was making, you know, I wasn't rich, but I was making like a young adult salary and I was like why would I try to bust my ass and try to have this music life when I'm getting like the life of friendship and all these great people and and um you know being like the the dream was not fame for me the dream was just like to be in an industry where you were cared about and to, to do something you love to do and I kind of mm -hmm. learned that pretty quick where it wasn't like I wanted to be some rock star you know, in my head I wanted that, but what I really wanted was to just do something I wanted to, like, that I cared about. And so I kept playing, kept doing, you know, that sort of thing. And then I was like, forget this, I'm just going to work here. Uh, and I was also really, really into clothes at that time. And the cool thing at Beggars where, again, you know, it's not like you can work on your other job while you're there. I'm going to be very clear. It's not like, well, come here and just <laughs> pretend to work. You know, it wasn't like that. But it was... It was a place where you could just have other dreams and you could, you could, you know, try to work towards those. And so I was really in clothes and fashion and, excuse me. And in the, uh, in the meantime, you know, in the evenings, I had started this like clothing blog. And this is 2008, nine. Um, and I was writing about clothes and, you know, and I think most of the time, like to have a blog at that time, it was not so much that you were, that you were like writing about yourself. It wasn't like extemporaneously. It was more people tried to create their own fact databases, whether they realized it or not. So it was always like a race with every other blogger for someone to talk about something that people should have paid closer attention to. And, you know, so you had like Lawrence Schwassman of you know throwing fits now who was writing about bean boots you know because at the time yeah. there wasn't a ton of information about ll bean boots and so he was writing about them and um and people were, you know this was also this era where the obsession with made in america americana you know we're at like we're we're nearing the end of the recession but we didn't really realize it so this kind of buy less buy better you know american sort of style was 
you know, working its way out from large, uh, like fashion houses, even mm. into sort of the mainstream. So you had, you know, Todd Snyder was at J. Crew. Um, Michael Bastion was doing his thing. You know, this is early, early Tom Brown. Um, you know, he was only starting to get sort of credit for what he was doing um, in maybe like 2007, eight, um, when he was just making suits with Rocco and had a place in the West Village. And I was writing a ton about this and just basically people would 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 create, you know, their own, yeah, like fact database. It was like, oh, hey, have you ever heard of a... Uh, of an ivy style jacket have you ever heard of a three two <laughs> roll you know things that now you can find pretty quickly on and it's not like people are going to search on wikipedia but if you search like ivy style jackets you'll find you know the links from twitter you'll find things on youtube you'll find um you know companies like j press will write about it but at the time no one was doing this this is so early in the internet which kind of like shows my age here um and so everyone was doing these blogs and like then this community kind of forms from that. Um, and I remember meeting, you know, at, at the time there was a trade show called Capsule and uh, it was run by a company called BPMW. And the big thing about Capsule was um, these were all like B2B trade shows. So for folks that don't know, it's like business to business. So like you can't go if you don't own a store or if you don't, yeah. you know, if you weren't a publication. If you were a blogger, that was like such a pejorative horrible term no one wanted to be identified as a blogger um but at the time you know you have things like huffington post and these things where uh you know buzzfeed where like media at the time and the new sort of darling of media were kind of blogger style individuals people that didn't have the sort of rough credentials and like strong um training of like capital j journalism they were just people who were writing about things they were extremely extremely interested in and what's funny is like if you zoom way way out this was this era where you know like a real journalist is impartial right you're yeah. you're impartial and you're unbiased which is now a term i don't think anyone understands right because everything is <laughs> biased and partial but yeah. at a real journalist at the time would never give their opinion. They would report the facts, right? And here comes this era, and this is just in the realm of fashion, where everyone is writing about things that they themselves love. And so there's like, if you're reading and you're reading about this stuff, it's very refreshing because there's this level of enthusiasm that's attached to the writing that you're reading, and it feels like it's a lot of fun. It feels mm -hmm. very welcoming because there's this joy in the writing and um that i think is what at least someone like myself had never really experienced because the only things that i was reading was like real professional journalism you know time magazine doesn't have a person gushing about music or, or clothes or any of that stuff because it was proper journalists and yeah. now like you can find outliers of this you know I'm sure even something like The Economist would have a person that would write about something they loved. But it was always like a very kind of one-off thing. But so here you have this this new level of journalism, and I'm not a journalist, but this new level of journalism, which was like people that were excited about things, that were reporting facts, that wanted other people to get as excited as they were, and they were things that were very difficult to find, 
And so you had all of these bloggers, and I was just trying to be one of the, you know, one of the gang. And then there's the actual industries right outside your doorstep because you're in New York. And I realized, I was like, oh my gosh, I have this advantage because I'm here. Like the trade shows are here. The stores are here. I could go do a store tour at Dior, you know, and I'm going to, and I remember trying to go to Dior home and being like, hey, I have a blog. Can I write about this? And they were like, what? (laughs) You know, and they were just like, and it's funny how dumb and naive I was, but I mean, it's not that I thought I deserved it, but I just thought I could ask. And so I was like, well, you know, I have this blog, it's called Start With Typewriters, and they're like, okay, who who do you write for? And I was like, oh, it's a blog, it's a website. And they're like, oh, a website? And they're like, no. And they're like, you know, here's here's our PR. You can message them. And so, of course, I email them, like, asking if I can write about this store. And, like, no, no one responds. But I would just hammer people with emails until I got a response. And it was always a very gentle, like, you know, thanks for your excitement, enthusiasm, and your support of Dior. No. <laughs> Um, and I'm like, okay. And so I go to, to jump back, I go to, uh, capsule and the way you had to get in is you had to make a business card. And so everyone is going to like Vista print and all these, pardon me, and all these just really dumb websites where you could make your own cheap business card for 40 bucks. (laughs) So the amount of people Mm -hmm. that were showing up to these things called like capsule with like business cards that said founder or CEO of their dumb blog, you know? (laughs) are through the roof and it's all you needed and i think you know adina and the people at bpmw at the time they were one of the first trade shows because even pity wouldn't let you in um that welcomed like this new form of media and this is like just the early age of people starting to get their own echo chamber of like where they got their news now when i say news i'm specifically i'm talking about just like their fashion news or the stuff that they were learning about. And what was interesting too is like the anonymity of it all because it's not like people are doing fit pics. People are just writing the things that they're excited about like Oxford button-down shirts and did you know that it originated here in the polo collar of Brooks Brothers (laughs) it was buttoned down from the polo players and that's why, you know, all this stuff. Um, It felt really welcoming to other people who kind of had an enthusiasm for this but never really felt that they deserved a place because they didn't come from that background, right? And so all these other blogs are kind of popping up. And I don't think anyone would write something and be like, hey, start your own blog. But I think people saw this and were like, oh, this isn't as difficult as what I thought. Maybe I should just try to do it. I mean, because that's at least me and at least people like Lawrence and and you know people like Corey Ollendorf from Valet, and which is now its own you know large publication. Even me five years later. Sure. I mean, it was just, so sorry with my cough, but I was just like, um, this is amazing. So I would go there and I had my little digital three megapixel camera and I took pictures of the booths and, you know, once you got in to capsule, still you had to get through the, um, I don't know, bureaucracy for lack of better term, uh, to get a vendor to pay attention to you. Because people are like, oh, what store are you here from? Or what magazine? And you're like, no, it's it's a website. And they're like, what do you mean? Like, how do I view it? And keep in mind, we don't have smartphones really yet. People have Blackberries, but the iPhone, you know, the iPhone had, had just come out. So, it, you know, it's it's still very, very rare. I think the iPhone came out, what, 07 or 08? Mm. 
And so it's it's not like the mobile web that we all know and love where now people are just browsing on that. So people are like, wait, I have to view this on a computer? And they're like, no, no, no. You know, and, or people would be like, no pictures. You can't take pictures. You know, and so I would show up with my my camera. It was like me and like John Moy had and John Moy had his like Nikon, you know, SLR camera. Oh. And they were like, No, no pictures. Get out of the booth. And so you were just like, What the fuck? And you know, and it's funny because now if you go to any of these places, you know, fast forward what, twenty twenty four, everyone's like, Yeah, take pictures because with you know, they want people to know or learn or talk about their stuff. Um and I think at the time People were just doing their job, you know, because they were worried about, like, oh, if you take pictures, you're taking pictures, you can go knock me off. And it's like, oh, yeah, is your button-down shirt proprietary, dude? Like, come on. <laughs> like, so, you know, but anyway, it, it, there was just that, that, um, I don't know, era of people trying to make stuff. And, you know, the selfish hedonist in me, I was like, hey, we should just start our own company and we can make our own stuff. Like, who's to say we can't do this? And this is, like, me and John Moy and Lawrence. And he's like, and we're like, yeah, that's a good idea. Like, it doesn't take that much money. Like, I'm sure I have some savings or Lawrence has some savings. We can figure it out. And so we all pooled our, I don't know, I think we pooled, like, a few grand, um, which was a lot for all of us. You know, I'm working at Beggars, though. I have, like, a pretty legit job and, you know, in – you know, your your nine to five is like helping sell Vampire Weekend records and Adele records and stuff. And it's, you know, you're you're living what I didn't realize I was really living the dream. I mean, it was just yeah. and that all the people there are still some of my closest friends and near and dear people that I would take a bullet for, you know, and um, we go and we, we start, you know, this company called Run in the Mill and we're like, we're just going to make, um, you know, American, Italian, this anglo and italian sort of mixture of stuff and we're going to make kind of this because sid mashburn i think was the newest person on the scene and everyone loved him he was doing his in the closet video with um oh gosh i don't know his name the guy from gq who went to bon appetit who unfortunately kind of got canceled for not being the best dude adam rapaport and you know and all you're watching style.com with like josh peskowitz and tyler thorson and on your little like QuickTime flash player or whatever on your <laughs> computer, which you couldn't watch on your phone, remember, because the first uh-huh. iPhones didn't support flash, um, which was a big deal for people. Mm-hmm. And they were like, oh, it's never going to make it. You can't really watch videos. You know, YouTube was had its own H.264 codec or 263 at the time. And uh, so we start this like company where we had met Mark McNary and we made um, like fun shirts like, uh, you know, Brooks Brothers Fun Shirts, which were being made at Garland, um, which is like the, you know, the same company that was making Brooks Brothers Made in America shirts in what, like North Carolina or South Carolina or whatever. And then we made like digi camo, eight pocket camos. We were basically coloring by number with a designer who already had stuff made, to be very clear. It's not like any of us were making tech packs. And it was funny because as we were doing this, I remember I had met other friends who were real capital D designers. And even them, they weren't even real designers. They were just people who knew how to make tech packs for brands. And just so you know what a tech pack is, when you're, if you work for a large house like, uh, I don't know, Tommy Hilfiger, Ralph Lauren, whatever, tech packs were the materials that you had to make to send the factories 
so they could understand and make your stuff correctly. So it would be almost like a blueprint, for lack of a better term, that would be sent to a factory. You know, it, it's not like, you know, couture days where someone would take a sketch and draw a sketch on a figure and then meet with the seamstress and seam workers and who would who would make the thing by hand. You basically made the equivalent of a blueprint. You sent it to a factory. And so what we were doing was we were just with Mark McNary, and he was like, these are my swatches. And we're like, cool, can we make this with this swatch? And then we're, you know, so then we went and we went on some bizarro weird site so we could make our own sewn-in labels. But we were getting the experience of, like, trying to start something from nothing. And we're like, we're going to write about our clothes, you know, (laughs) and sell our clothes on here and tell everyone that we're doing this. And so we did that. And then, you know, you meet and make other friends from these parties. And so it's like, oh, we're going to message the GQ folks and we're going to ask them to write about it. You know, like like any other person would do. We were just, you know, goofballs. And... We did that, and the clothing brand like was okay. I would say, you know, we sold a lot of stuff, but we didn't price anything accordingly because we just priced things at like the price that we could afford them if we had the money that we had now. So we weren't making any margins to actually make a living and grow. You know, I remember people were like, "Oh, well, it costs this. You should have a two and a half x margin so you can," you know. And now people don't realize like margins on clothing, two and a half to three and a half. You know, for just your standard, I don't know, shirt that's sold by, I don't know, uh, a clothing company. Because you need the margins so you can pay for things like duties and customs and shipping and packaging and staff and um, and rent. hopefully that money. Yeah, rent. And hopefully that money fuels the income for you to make more. And we were like, how do we do this so we don't really lose money? But we didn't factor in, you know. <laughs> We basically were like, how do we do this so we make enough money to give ourselves this stuff for free? And I'm uh, trying to be as transparent as possible because it was like, you know, it was so much of a fly-by-night operation, but it worked out really well. And next thing you know, there's like $100,000 in a PayPal account. And uh, we're like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. We just made all this money. Like, we're going to go be, you know, we're going to buy some more clothes with it, you know. And uh, then PayPal locked up our money. And um, it, they basically refused to give it, refused to, give it to us. Because they were like, um, like basically it was a form of money laundering is what they're thinking. Like you guys just open up an account and you're selling a bunch of stuff but you haven't shipped anything yet and there's like this much money in there. And we were like, well, no, we need the money to pay for the PO. And this is like right as the Madoff stuff had just kind of popped off. And they're like, well, no, that's technically a Ponzi scheme. <laughs> and we're like, what? It's not, we're not, we're not trying to do that. It's like we were selling the stuff ahead of time so we could make the money so we could then pay for the stuff because we didn't have the money, you know. <laughs> and John Moy, who is a lawyer, was like, this doesn't seem legal. And so he starts figuring out how there's a there could be a potential class action lawsuit against PayPal. So he messages him and was like, hey, you know, I work with this law firm and, you know, there's enough stuff to get a class action against you. <clears throat> you should let our money go. And they were like, okay. And so they let our money out and they gave us our money. <laughs> we paid for the stuff. And then we went to pity because we're like, we're just going to blow it all out. And we're going to go have this big fun trip. We're going to go to pity. And this is like January, 2011, 2012, I think, uh, that we go to pity together as like run in the mill, you know, mm-hmm. and we're like going to go meet factories. And it actually started to happen where we met knitwear factories and people were, you know, 
the the European folks were a little bit more kind to us, but I would say it was more that they just weren't as cruel. You know, like people were just like, "What you have a what?" And you're like, "Oh, you're an online store." Oh, okay. And I remember we had met Yuki from Yucatan in Mon Italy, and we were the first online only store that they ever sold to. And what was funny is they had it listed through the name of my blog because they entered the name in incorrectly. And so the store, they had it, like if you search Stockus, it was start with typewriters, which was my blog. It wasn't run of the mill. You know, and I remember we had <laughs> we did these really, really nice high end, like bright red it was like a 60-40 parka, but it was wool and lined with wool on the inside. Or it was like a heavy duck cloth on the outside, but lined with wool on the inside. It was a That's beautiful a mountain coat. parka, I think. Yeah, it was like a mountain parka. And it was like, a you know, we bought these for running the mill. And um, uh, I remember they cost like $800. Yeah. You know, and this is around the time where like the most expensive outerwear for like the dorky online dudes was a K-born parka. Which I think, you know, it still is probably the most expensive outerwear thing. But like the Cavorn Park, I think was close, was like $1,200 at the time. This is like 2008 or nine uh, or 2010. And we're like, man, like no one's going to buy this. And the people bought it. We're like, holy shit, this is amazing. So we go to Pity, we have fun. And uh, then meanwhile, my other job, um, you know, they're like, what are you doing? You work here. <laughs> Like, what, what are you, what are you doing? Come like, you know, I was taking vacation. I wasn't being negligent or any sort of stuff like that, you know, but they would just see my enthusiasm. Um, and it was just, they were just like, well, like, what does the, you have this job? Like, why, like, do you have a desire to have another career? And I remember having a review and they were just like, so what, you know, you're on your way to do more of this marketing and you're being more involved in this, but like, you have this desire for this, like, what's this other store? What's this other brand? You know, and it was cool because Martin Mills, was like, look, like, do you see yourself designing merch for bands? You know? And it's interesting, if you look back, like, based on the position he was in, it's not like I'm some, I'm easily replaceable, you know? But he was, like, kind of nurturing me in this almost, like, paternal way, which I really did not understand. And I very much took for granted and you know, I'm extremely grateful for now because he was like, kind. he wasn't like leave, like you either do this or leave. But he was just like, oh, this is cool. So do you see yourself like incorporating this into your role at Beggars? And I was like, yeah, actually I do. You know, I want to do the e-com and we should be making clothing stores, you know, out like better merch. Like what if more expensive merch, you know, obviously it didn't happen, but, um, he was cool with it. And, uh, um, then I'd met Mark Cho at the time at PT Womo and Mark was like, Oh, you know, congrats on your brand and what you guys were doing. And like, we weren't anyone, but like three little dorks that kind of came out of nowhere that like sold some serious numbers. You know, I mean, we had, you know, we, we didn't realize this, but we were selling more shoes than like some of the stores that these shoe companies were selling to. And so all of a sudden, unbeknownst to us, we're like kind of, you know, not like like big dogs, but like we didn't realize that like we had an audience and people were buying, you know, because we're we're selling, 
I don't know, a few hundred shirts and, you know, like a hundred some odd pairs of shoes, which is quite a bit for these other places are ordering, you know, 12 pairs of Aldens and pre-selling them and they're gone. And, you know, but they were actually making their business to scale. We're just trying to be idiots and get stuff. So we made enough money to give it to us for free and, um, <laughs> and go to pity, you know? And so we go there, we do all that stuff. I meet Mark and Mark was like, Hey, you know, I am, um, gonna open an armory in the u.s like would you have any interest in doing what you're doing for me and i was like holy shit like yeah dude and um you know also at the time i was writing for esquire thanks to nick sullivan and i was writing about watches and making you know my own clothes and i remember going to this party and meeting this woman who was the manager it was a it was a Richard Meal party for Natalie Portman, who was going to be an ambassador. And I was at this party. And it was at the St. Regis. It was a super fancy party. And I'm there like an idiot, feeling dumb. And I was wearing run-of-the-mill. And this woman comes up to me. She's like, I really like what you're wearing. And I was like, oh, yeah, this is my brand. She's like, oh, are you a designer? And I was like, no, I, I just have my own brand. I actually, you know, I was like, I write for Esquire. And she's like, cool. She's like, I manage Natalie. Why don't you meet her? And I was like, oh, okay. And she brings Natalie Portman over. And she's like, hey, nice to meet you. You know? And she's like, this is Jeremy. He he makes these clothes. And I'm like, well, no. You know, I, and I'm constantly trying to, like, belittle myself. And she's like, well, you know, no, he makes these clothes. And then she gives me her card. And she's like, well, if you're ever in L.A., let me know. It'd be cool to get some of your clothes on my clients. And I was like, oh, yeah. And at the time, I'm still at Beggars. And I'm going to L.A. for the... LA office and so I go to LA like a few weeks later and I I email her and you know it's an important person when their email is their name office at you know blank and blank it's not their email it's their office email yeah. um, which is basically what their staff reads and stuff for them so I email and I'm like hey I want to meet you know I'm here I have clothes can I meet with you no response Another email, no response. Another email, no response. Another email, no response. And then I'm like, hey, I'm here, like still, and I'm leaving soon. I would like, you know, can I please meet and discuss this? And then I get a phone call, and they're like, please hold for blank. And I'm like, what? And they're like, hey. And she's like, what do you want? And I was like, I, I have my this clothes. And she's like, all right. She's like, well, if, you know, I have some time today. Can you get down here? And I'm like, shit, okay. So I go to my boss, who's like the head of Matador Records. I'm like, hey, can you drive me to this meeting? He's like, are you asking me to drive you to a job interview? And I was like, no, but like, this is really important. Can you do this? And he's like, yeah, okay, let's go. Let's get in the car. So he goes and he drives me, and he sits in the car while I go and I have this meeting, which is really nice of him. And I go inside, and I have my meeting, and she comes in and sits down, and there's like Emmys and Oscars behind her. And she's like, what do you want? I was like, I would love to like dress some of your clients. And she's like, well, who do you dress? And I was like, well, I just worked on the Michael Bastion show and I kind of helped style that, which I did. And she's like, okay. And I was like, and I make these clothes. It'd be cool. Can I like, she's like, do you, are you trying to sell the clothes to me? And I was like, N no, but, um, and I'm just totally out of my mind. And she's like, okay, well, how about this? She's like, I started working with this client. I won't name names for this stuff. I've told some of these stories before, but she's like, um, I started working with this person. Why don't you dress them? And if it works, we'll get you other clients. And what I didn't realize is I basically was working for free. And I was getting to dress, you know, Josh Gad and Topher Grace and Mark Ruffalo and Paul Rudd and all these like actors and big deal people. But I wasn't really making any money. 
And so I was, you know, I was like, what the fuck am I doing? So I'm doing this, but I'm like, hey, you know, I can put them in, in run in the mill. I can dress them and run in the mill. Like all of a sudden I can, I'm, I like, I have the best of both worlds. I'm making the clothes, I'm selling the clothes and I'm, I'm dressing the, the actors and I can now like put these clothes on them. It doesn't, you know, it, it works, but I'm broke and I just gotten married and my wife's like, you're like 20 some odd grand in debt from FedEx things and all sorts of stuff. Like, what are you doing? You can't do this. And then Mark Cho messages me and he's like, hey, you want to come work? I'm going to do the armory. Like it's, it's probably 2013 now. And or yeah, he's like, I'm going to do this armory, the armory store in the U S or it's late 2012. And he's like, you want to come work? I'm like, yeah. So I go to Martin Mills and beggars and I'm like, Hey, um, I think I have this other job. I'm going to leave. And they were like, okay, well, see ya, <laughs> you know? And I remember Martin, like he said the nicest thing to me. And, uh, he was like, look, if everything fails, I'll hold your job and you can come back. Huh. And, uh, you know, I remember John Caramonica wrote a thing about the armory for the critical shopper after it opened. And there was a picture of me in it and there was a quote of me in it. And um, Martin Mills saw it and forwarded it to me, to my email, and said, hey, looks like I probably don't need to hold your job for you anymore. Congrats. Hope you're doing well. You know, keep in touch. And uh, it was great, you know, and then, you know, I started working at the Armory and the Armory was great. It was a good job. It was very, you were doing everything. I was on the sales floor in addition to making the website, in addition to trying to do marketing and events and partnerships and stuff and kind of pulling together all the strategies I had from other, other roles. And um, then I, like anything else, like I just was looking for something else to do to distract myself from what I was doing. Um, and I started the podcast in 2016 and, you know, then did that and it kind of took off and left the armory in 27, nope, 20, yeah, towards the end of 2016, I think early 2017, I left the armory and been doing that ever since. There's your story. And you're making a living. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's funny cause the, the pod makes money, but as the pod has grown, and I don't mind saying this, it's not totally sustaining. So it, 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 makes, it makes enough to exist and to pay for editors and to pay for other people to make their pods and, and to, to pay for, you know, overhead. Um, but what's great and what's also kind of weird is then I get jobs that are not related to the podcast and then I get, that's how I basically make a living from that. You know, otherwise most of the money the pod makes just goes to the pod continuing to exist. So I'm, I always feel like I'm caught in this weird hamster wheel where it's like, I have to make the pod. I mean, I love doing it, but I have to make the podcast to give myself like notoriety for lack of a better term to get hired, to do other things like consulting, which I can make money on to take care of my family. But I still have to keep doing the podcast to make the notoriety exist that someone wants to hire me outside <laughs> of it. So you're kind of in this like constant hamster wheel, but yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's great. I'm very, very, very blessed. It struck me when you were talking about uh, the age of the blog and the the brands weren't taking you seriously. I mean, clearly they didn't see then that this was free marketing, massive free marketing to a very, yeah. very receptive audience. Then you were doing the styling and you wanted to dress the celebrities and you realized that you were doing that for free as well. 
And now we see influencers on social media, Instagram and so forth, who are also, again, providing massive free marketing to brands. Yeah. I mean, when are we going to get wise to our own value? I I don't think that'll ever happen. I think industries is as, um, I don't know, as small and kind of as gross as like the fashion industries. They're always designed to take advantage of cheap labor. You know, I think, I don't think there's anything wrong with hiring someone and giving them an opportunity but if that never changes right like there's there used to be this joke that people that worked at Condé Nast were all these like rich kids because they were the ones who could actually live in New York and have this entry-level job at Condé Nast because they had money from their parents to offset that Mm. you know it's like if you wanted if you I remember I had gotten a job offer to work at a magazine and the starting salary was 32000 which was basically right around poverty level in New York. And, you know, and keep in mind, you got to pay taxes and all these other things on it. But, like, that, it, it wasn't enough. But other people had that, and they had this, like, kind of extravagant life. And you're like, oh, they have supplemental income, you know. And in most cases, it was from families. And so I feel like most of the fashion industry is kind of like that. And it was more or less designed that way. And people do. There's upward maneuverability, but I don't know. It's very, I think it's very hard and it's very challenging. And at the end of the day, um, you know, there's just a, a, none of these things also make that much money because also they spend all that money to, to do the dumb things like fly in a bunch of, you know, influencers to sit at front row. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's, I don't know. Like I, I, I want to say this in a way that doesn't sound like I'm okay with all of this, but it's like this. These industries that were so much built on just like taking advantage of that, and I don't know what it would take to kind of shake that down. You know, the things that I see that people like that work in sort of fashion. I'm air quoting that make a good living are people that work for like very very large like companies like Ralph Lauren or companies that people don't view as like capital F fashion, you know? Mm. Like if you get an entry-level job in an extremely prestigious fashion house, you're not you're not going to be able to like retire off that, you know? It's it's most of these roles are lily pad roles, and I think the people that offer those jobs have resigned themselves to be okay with the fact that someone will be here for two years and then they'll leave, and then you'll just start it over again, you know? And I never realized that until I looked back on what I had at Beggars when I was like, oh, the people that are here have been here for a long time. There's very little turnover. And it's because they care more. You know, you you can be there. I could still be at Beggars today if I never would have left. Mm -hmm. Um, Because it was a place where it was just how, and I think it's more of a European specifically maybe a British mindset for them, you know, but I don't know. I really wrestle with that a lot. Uh, I mean, cause I've been like that too, where I remember back in the day, people would email me and they were like, Hey, can I be an intern? And I was like, well, I don't have the money. And they're like, well, I'll intern for free. And I was like, no, no. Mm. I was like, I can't. And I'm like, I can't do it unless I can pay you a fair wage. 
and like this is what the fair this is what I think the fair wage is and it was basically you know 25 or something an hour and um which was far above you know the 10 dollar minimum wage but I like I wanted to pay people fairly but I also realized at the time I was missing out on the ability to kind of grow more I could be paying someone nothing to do my social media as for some you know intern person kid whatever but I, I didn't want to do it because it, it just felt wrong because I'd also mm. been there where I'd been working for other people where like the payment was the fame, was that was the association, was the email address that you got, you know, <laughs> um, and I just couldn't I couldn't do it. So, yeah, I guess that realization is something that comes with age. Yes. Yeah. Now, I wanted to talk to you a bit about um, your sort of menswear evolution. Now, I've listened to your pod enough, so I know that you've gone through quite a few distinct stages, and I'd like to know which one, in retrospect, was the best. Was so the I, best? I know, I, know, I know where I personally am sort of stuck. Um, I don't know. I guess whatever I'm at now, which is just being okay with wearing whatever I want, I think it helps that I don't live in New York anymore. Um, because I think sometimes, you know, the, the streets, your runway, honestly, it sounds tacky to say, but so you always felt this way to like really, really, really like show or, you know, stunt, whatever you want to say. And so I would, I was always trying to figure out who I was by what I was wearing. So I used to wear a bunch of Tom Brown super early on. This is like 2008, nine. Um, I wore a ton of Rick Owens around that area when I was styling. Um, you know, I was wearing skirts and, you know, Rolando McLean Raiders jerseys and, uh, and then earliest I was wearing suits. I was wearing like Keton, you know, that I would just buy on eBay. You know, I, ne- I never had money. Um, and then now it's more of, and I guess before I before I moved, I was like getting really into like old man, like rich style, you know, where it was like okay. you're wearing like Laura Piana, but you're not it's not like loud, you know, brands. You're not like I'd wear a lot of Cuccinelli and Laura Piana, but it, it, it's not like you, you were covered in logos. You were just wearing like really, really high end, you know, basics, for lack of a better term, you know. Um, and then at the armory, obviously, I got kind of poisoned by bespoke and learning how things like truly fit when they fit good and they fit right. And now, I mean, right now I'm wearing, this is a vintage, uh, Russell athletic hoodie. This is an engineer garments shirt. This is a Patagonia down sweater. My pants are from forest designs. And then I'm wearing some old weird, like rag wool socks and like Birkenstocks. And like now I'm, I'm like much more comfortable in that. Like, I don't feel that. And I think with age, what, you know, it's kind of the thing. I don't feel I'm trying to prove to myself so much anymore. I still hate the majority of what I wear whenever I wear it because that's just imposter syndrome and issues of my own self-worth. But like, I don't know. I would say I'm much more comfortable in this era now where I'm not, I don't feel that I have to say anything else about what I'm wearing. I don't know. Like, like you know, um, say without saying or something. And maybe not feeling that others are judging you and that you're so caught up in this what's the new next new thing so you have to be on on it. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, I'm more comfortable also just being like, yeah, I am, you know, a 38-year-old father of two kids. <laughs> like, I don't think anyone, like, wants to be like me, and that's totally fine, you know. But in my head, I would be like, how can I, you know, how can I signal that I belong somewhere? And now I'm just like, why, 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 did, I, why did I do that? So, I mean, I had fun doing it, though. I mean, it's a great, it was a great journey. I don't regret yeah. it, I guess, but, yeah. Yeah, I, I'm I'm sort of quite uh, concerned about the social media thing, where everyone's posting their their fit pics, uh, as we mentioned, free advertising for the brands. But sort of what drives us to keep promoting ourselves in that way? Are we wanting the brands to sort of notice us, or is it just flexing for the homies? Notice I'm using the correct language here. I think. <laughs> sure. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I mean, you're 38. I'm a bit older than you. Uh, I mean, wh why are we even bothering? Well, I think now it's just because it's fun and it's a community, right? Like, if you look at, like, the Blamo Slack, nobody yeah. cares. We're just having fun. You know, there might be a few people that are in there that might be upset with how many emojis their Fitbit gets. You know, maybe. I don't, I don't even know. I would be shocked if that's the case. But now it's just like we're just having fun and... It's, you know, you recognize like what you wear will never define you. You know, you're always going to be defined by who you are, by the, the interactions you have with other people, whether you're kind or generous, whether, you know, you're warm. Um, you know, I mean, when you think about that, like it's, it's kind of heavy. And so I think now when you look at people that are doing fit pics, it's just to have fun. Um, and I say this specifically of the people that I know or the stuff that I see, like in the Blamo Slack or, you know, or online. And like if I do a fit pick or something like that, it's just fun. Um, I would say if you're younger, or at least the younger version of me, yeah, I wanted to get noticed because I didn't have the confidence in myself or felt that I belonged. And so I was like, well, if I do this, maybe someone will notice me and recognize me and give me the worth that I don't feel I already have. And now you're like, does it matter? You know, and for some people it may, it may really still matter into which they might be at some point in their life and they, they have some dream or whatever they want to do. And this is the way they do that. And I, 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 I applaud that. It's just, it's a long road and I don't think it'll lead to happiness, but you can still have fun doing it. You know, it's like a bunch of people, this isn't probably not the best example, but I think of like, when you think of a bunch of, uh, you know, I remember going, walking in New York in the summer in my neighborhood and you'd see a bunch of people sitting outside and they're just playing dominoes. You know, it's like a, like a Scorsese movie. And they're just playing dominoes. Like, why are they playing? Like, what's the point? Are they, any of them trying to be professional athletes? No, it's community. It's, mm. it's friendship. It's, it's where you find things to talk about. Um, you know, if you notice, and what I think is really interesting, no one, there was one time actually where someone had joined the Blamo Slack and they posted a fit pic and they said, critique my fit. Ooh. And no one said anything. <laughs> People were like, no. And then one person eventually was like, okay, sure. You know, then they were like, well, is this, is this fit right? You know, and someone's like, all right, well, the sleeves are low. And I, and when I saw that, I almost like messaged them being like, hey, you can't do that here. But because it reminded me of like the early days of Style Forum, 
in which people would do that and they would get roasted. Someone would post something because they were excited about a jacket they got. And someone would be like, that's trash. It doesn't fit you right. It's too big in the shoulders. It's too long. The pockets are offset. Your button placement's incorrect. You know, um, your shirt collar is wrong. <laughs> you know, it, whatever it is. Yeah. And then that they would just rip this person to shreds. And I'm like, what is that? You know, and I, I, and then, so this guy did it in the Blamo Slack. And he's definitely not in there anymore. I mean, no one kicked him out. But I think he realized that, like, this isn't a place where that's going to happen. And I was like, oh, yeah. Oh, that's great. Like, people are just here to have fun and to cheer people on and to have a community. And so when I think about FitPix now, it's that. Yeah. Um, but that's also, I recognize I'm in my own echo chamber of like-minded individuals who are not striving for, you know, perfection and recognition based on an image of themselves. They're just having fun. It's interesting that you bring up Style Forum because old forums, they were a bit rough. They're um, horrendous. But even now to this day, and maybe even more so now, young insecure guys are still desperate for the rules, how to dress, how to combine stuff. I mean, I see Derek Guy on Twitter now and on the patron Die Workwear pod. I mean, it's just... I don't know, it's a bit joyless to me, but rules, rules, rules. Do this and do that and don't do that. Yeah. Where's the, where's the fun? Well, it's interesting, right? Because I, I do, you know, people now are like, well, you have to learn the rules and break them. And I'm like, that's so stupid. The truth is most people want the rules because they're too scared to lean on their own, their own sort of like intuition or their own form of expression. Because if you lean on rules, rules are the bad guy, Right. Well, sorry that I wore it this way. It's just how you're supposed to do it. Instead of someone saying, I chose to do this because it made me feel good. Right? Like that is very rare. And I think now it's less because people are more okay with self-expression. But, you know, it's interesting. Everyone that loves the rules, their icons are the people who never subscribe to them. You know, it was always funny to me when people in style form would talk about how a suit should fit but every photo that they loved was in Yelly and Johnny Yelly you know the the late you know chairman of Fiat and style god and whatever um basically didn't follow the rules right yes he wore a jacket that sit on his neck but he only wore bespoke clothing it's, of course it's going to sit on your neck you know like he wore his watch this way or he wore boots with his suit. Or, and I was like, oh, wow, what a person to break the rules, you know? And that became what everyone put their sort of like, you know, all their eggs in that basket. And it's like, well, how can you, you, you can't have both. And so for all the menswear stuff and even people like Alan Fluster and all that would like, look, you have to learn all these rules because then you can figure out which ones you can break on your own. And I feel like... There are some rules of just like, hey, you know, wear a shirt that fits around your neck. But at the same time, like, does that even matter anymore? Like, are you happy and are you comfortable with what you're wearing? And I think the confidence that you exude in your comfort, people just kind of assume you're good enough. I do. I mean, I walk around New York now and I go down Dime Square and all this stuff. And you see all these kids, young, young adults, and they're wearing things I would never wear. And I would never wear it that way. But I will never, ever, in a million billion years, tell them that they're wrong, because the truth is they're not. 
it's what they want to wear and it's what they want to feel like. The interesting thing is I recognize that's kind of boring. If you're okay with everything, there's no tension. So there's no learning. <laughs> there's no challenge. There's just this utopian world of everyone giving each other hugs and high fives. And that's actually a great world, but I think people don't want it as much as they, they want. They want challenge. They want learn. They want, they want to, you know, um, and I'm all, I always wrestle with that where it's like, okay, um, is there a way to do this in a way that doesn't hurt someone, you know? And I think it's just like, no, like iron sharpens iron. And if you just have everyone around, people are going to naturally want to look like someone else or dress like something else. And if you wear the things the way you want to wear it, you, you'll be fine. Yeah. So it's very interesting to me, but it's this big socio, you know, I don't know. Big so that's like experience. you're on the brink of becoming an old man, but you're realizing it. So you're trying to pull back and be a nice guy, but you still want to be a bit angry old man. And, oh, I but... love to hate. I love to hate on everything. <laughs> I love to hate on movies and clothes. And, you know, I, I, there's a few group chats I'm in where I'm just a piece of shit and I just hate on everything. But we also recognize that it's totally unjust. I don't actually have strong feelings of dislike or hate towards anyone. Yeah. Yeah, but it's interesting what you say about the young people because I mean they cosplaying manga Japanese style and all this. I, mean, sure. I applaud it because it's so colourful and so creative and so not boring. But of course, it's just another subculture, really. So they're copying what they see from Japan, from other places. Just like people are still dressing like punks now, forty years after the fact. Uh, yeah, you, you see a sixty-year-old guy with his Mohican up in the air, and you realise that yeah, you're not really. Uh, protesting against much now but yeah so it's all subcultures and i mean i guess we're sort of in a menswear subculture where there's quite a few sub subcultures yeah the thing that's interesting now is because media is so niche and everyone kind of lives with their own echo chamber there's not a norm of if you zoom way out right like the establishment would dictate clothes they would say, you wear this, and you're good enough. And now everyone finds their own small communities, and they're very easy to find because we're all digitally connected, for better and for worse. And so you find that community, and you don't really get, you know, there's no one telling you how to dress or how to do this. You can find that if you want it somewhere else. But otherwise, if you want to, you know, wear the, I don't know, the Mohawks, or if you want to wear the oversized fits or whatever, you know, or the Ivy League sort of stuff. They all exist and they can all live harmoniously. And you can go to New York or Paris or any or London or whatever. And you see everyone wearing it. And you're like, yeah, you know, there you go. Like that's, they all exist. And no one is saying this person isn't allowed or that, you know, the only thing that still probably exists is like maybe a club in London. And they're saying like, you got to wear a jacket, you know, or you got to wear, yeah, jacket and tie, which I, you know, I think, I love to wear ties now. People are like, ties are so dead. I'm like, fine. But it's still great to wear a tie. I, I, When my wife and I go out to dinner, which is unfortunately pretty rare, um, I'll wear a jacket and tie. Hell yeah, it's fun. And people, you know, some sometimes people are like, well, that's kind of weird, guys in there. Everyone in there is wearing Under Armour, right? But you're like, <laughs> yeah, hell yeah, it's great. Feels good. <laughs> yeah, I, I enjoy ties as well. I mean, none of them are expensive. They're all thrifted or wherever from. But uh, it's yeah. just another way to add something of interest. Yeah, I don't do. I don't think I have any sport coats though. And you're 
always talking about sport coats. Oh my God, it's the best. But, I mean, <laughs> this is this is sort of me coming from small town Norway, you in, well, ex-New York. I mean, it's sort of the global menswear versus uh, very localised. And, I mean, sport coats aren't a big deal here, I think. I don't even have a suit as such. Well, I mean, here's the thing. You, you dress for your environment. If you don't need one and you don't want one, you don't then you don't need one, right? Like, But um, I just like sport coats because I think they help me take less time to get dressed. I'm, and I truly mean this because otherwise my brain doesn't know how to focus and figure out what I want to be or what, you know, because I'm so like, oh, how do I express myself or how do I wear this or should I wear this or, you know, into which when... You have less options, and this is not like a Sid Mashburn thing, but it's like when you just have less op- options and all of them are like more or less, you know, correct, air quote, and you just grab what you want and you leave. You don't spend much time getting dressed. You just look, you know, you look good in the traditional sort of 1930s, 40s sense of the world of like you have pants and they they fit. They're not too long. They're not too short. You have a jacket. It fits. It sits on your neck you have a button-down shirt and it's a very sort of you know smart casual look and if you like it and you feel good do it but like I love sport coats for that reason um but you know I think whenever I think about like how I want to be seen it's basically just whatever dumb movie I just saw you know <laughs> the, the amount of people that got really into like British country wear it, it it managed to happen around the same time the crown was coming out, right? And you're just like, mm-hmm. oh, okay, you know. And, and so there's a bit <laughs> of like, yeah, it would be cool to look like, you know, I guess King Charles now, whatever. Um, and those you know folks and they're stalking in Scotland. Okay, cool. I'll dress like mm-hmm. that. Um, and that stuff is also, I think, really because it has been such a norm for so long, at least, you know, in the U.S. It's very easy to find. Yeah. You know, everyone kind of makes a sport coat, sport coat-esque thing. So you can get it at various price points, new and old. Um, well, and, what makes a sport coat yeah. a sport coat, though? Well, traditionally, it's some sort of, you know, you have a lapel, you have a breast pocket, you have two pockets on each side, yeah. a couple buttons on the front. Uh, I mean, the traditional thing was obviously it would be like a heavier fabric and there was a canvas, so it would yeah. shape your body. But, you know, the evolution or the, the whole reason behind it all was basically, you know, the sport coat was a way to wear that. It, you could shun the long tails, right? You could shun tails. You could, the, the frock coat and things like that that were much bigger. And so it's if you zoom way, way, way out, all of these things were just ways to be more casual in ways that you still gave nods to the uh, establishment of how you wanted to dress. You know, how punk is that? <laughs> well, I mean, not the, punk, the punk idea is brilliant. I mean, doing it yourself and shunning the impressors. Sure. Um, now that, I mean, you've admitted that you're not sort of on the hamster wheel of buying more stuff all the time. You're sort of quite yeah. satisfied with where you are. I mean, you do have a keen interest, though, in uh, in the Garms. And oh yeah, there must be some uh, 
greater grails that you're still um, searching for? You don't yeah, I mean, to I'd tell love me to about get eBay searches, but uh, <laughs> I'd love to get a, a, a suit from Corcos. Um, uh, Sartoria Corcos, which is he's a Japanese tailor based out of Florence. He's kind of like the new, more affordable Liberano. Um, I'd love to get a suit from him. His books have been closed. Can't really get in. And it's not like, oh, I want it because you can't have it. It's just, it's very affordable. And I, I really like that look for my body style and type. Um, you know, but like, I'd say that's probably the stuff that I would like to order. I mean, I love Jay Muser. Um, and he's a good friend. So he, you know, he always helps me out with getting stuff. But uh, I think like that's the stuff I like. But like, I mean, I love anything that Angelo uh Arucci does from 4S. Um I really really love that. But like if you're talking about like the stuff that just came out, you know, while we were recording like the Louis Vuitton western stuff, nah, I have no interest in that. Um I respect it. I think it's cool, but like I don't know. You're not going to catch me wearing like Louis Vuitton western shirts. It's someone else can wear that. But it doesn't, I don't have the, the income or the, yeah. Those things too, like, they're they're so exciting because they're new and they're a part of like a very current new collection. It'll be interesting if people are still wearing all that stuff five, ten years from now. The only stuff I see where people wear like runway designer stuff now would be things like Margiela, Dries. Things that like don't change that much, you know, like the, the the collections all kind of blend together. Stuff you can actually use, maybe. Yeah, I would say things that also fit in with other things you wear. You know, Rick Owens stuff is great, but it, it's I would say the it's very 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 difficult to get something from like a Rick Owens runway, and then wear it with everything else you have. You know, it just it. It's tough. You know, you, you got to find some way to do it. So if you're going to go in, you got to go all in. And this is separate from like Dark Shadow, which is like they're kind of more denim and, you know, relaxed workwear collection he does. But yeah. Do you think part of the problem is maybe that there's just so much stuff out there now? There's just so many brands and stuff's coming out all the time and it's we're just flooding our perception of everything. Yeah. I mean, there's way too much clothes. There's way too much stuff. But I don't know. I don't know how to stop it. I don't, you know, it, I think it's tough because all these things are, you know, it's capitalism. You know, they're trying to sell so they can make money so they can do this stuff. And so I'm always like, eh. you know, it would be great if there were no, if no one made new clothes ever again and everyone was just forced to find what they wanted. But like, the great thing about humans and people, like we all want to find ways to express ourselves. So someone is going to take something and remake it or change it. There's a few different brands and people that I follow where they basically just sell clothes that are remade from other clothes that exist. But what's tough is uh, it's tough to scale that, right? (laughs) You know, you can't really do that. So kind of there's the same problem again of just, because people got to pay to get by and to pay bills, pay health insurance, pay, you know, staff. So it's 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 tough. 
but there's definitely a lot of clothes out there. Way too much. I have been, no idea of a solution. <laughs> yeah, there has been a sort of resurgence of interest in in vintage clothes, though. But I, I sort of part of the problem there is that everyone seems to be after the same stuff. And well, yeah, such a lot of stuff that no one's interested in, so it's not really solving the problem. It will exactly. I mean, there is a you know the best thing that I think I've seen over the past few years is that people are paying for vintage and valuing it the same way they value new which is kind of how it should. The clothes that lasted that long, you know, yeah. old Levi's. You know, I remember one person was like, man, you know, I wanted to buy a pair of vintage Levi's and they were $150. And I'm like, yeah. Well, one, you're buying it from someone who did all the work and picked everything out and found the ones that are worth you getting. They're, you know, the quality is good. So, you know, why not? Is it because that they were worn before? They, they don't feel the value to you? And maybe that's a feeling, but... The interesting thing is when you think about what is vintage clothes going to be 20 years from now, Ooh. is it going to be a bunch of people, <laughs> you know, oh, I'm looking for some, this is Under Armour 2022, you know, it's like, oh, <laughs> we're fucked. You don't want that. Athleisure vintage, that's going to be the worst thing ever. And I think that's probably the only stuff where I don't know if that sort of vintage air quotes going to exist. No, I mean, part of that is just the sort of cheap uh, polyester <coughs> plastic stuff that has been made since around 1990, I guess, uh, which is flooding all the vintage shops and outlets now. Yeah, which people don't even want. If you go to the Goodwill next to me and you give them a bunch of athletic wear, it, they just send it to the textile recycling, which I don't even know how it's getting recycled, but... Most of it gets it burnt, is. I think, because it's just oil-based plastic, really. So yeah. there's no, no value in it other than its yeah. energy content, which is pretty sad. I guess in, I don't know, how many years will it be when they start, uh, when the sort of good stuff from around 2010 starts uh, becoming vintage? I mean, that's the stuff I liked when uh, Nick Worcester and, uh, and Kay Bourne and the guys were, it's all tweed and raw denim and proper shoes yeah. and... Well, that's what I think is. <laughs> I'm still hung up on that. Uh, well, that's great. I mean, that's fine because there's still tons of that. There's yeah. tons of people that make great workwear and, you know, denim. I mean, geez, there's always great denim out there. Great, you know, Caborn stuff is still going strong. He's still kicking. He's still doing the rounds. Definitely, definitely. Yeah. Um, are you getting a bit short on time now? I probably got to jump in probably like 20 minutes. Okay. So. Um, I mean, are you concerned about the environment, sustainability, as such as it means when it comes to clothes? Um, when you're out shopping, I say that I'm, ordering stuff? Yeah, I wouldn't say that I'm. I'm not concerned. But I think the biggest thing that's going to shift and actually make a significant difference won't be from, you know, me not buying new things or, you know, all that stuff. Like if you if you really want to change, it, it's got to come from the companies themselves and mm. from governments to enforce, you know, standards that have to be met. You know, when you look at... um cable boxes right that was a an actual like, 
<laughs> yeah, when you look at like an actual cable box uh-huh. like for cable TV, it's the best example of monopoly and zero innovation and no enforcement by any sort of government that it existed in because it never changed. It was an ugly-ass box that sat on people's TVs or near them so they could watch their television and get their you know, entertainment. And it was only when other companies came in to kind of disrupt that or when governments came in to say, hey, it needs to be this size or it needs to be this regulation in terms of energy use where you started to see, you know, innovation. And even then, it wasn't even innovation. It was just trying to exist. And so they would try to find a way to change something to improve. So like, you know, the iPhone adopting USB-C, right? Like if you want to, you know, use that as an example. That was just because the European Union was like, you got to cut this shit out. There's too much, <laughs> too much digital waste. Yeah. We want a universal standard. Do this or you can't sell your phone. And they're like, oh, okay. And then they turn it into a story of like, hey, check it out, everyone. We did USB-C. Mm-hmm. When it's like, you know, and so I think if you, if you want to see real change, the best way to do it is to lobby your local governments and your larger governments to ask them to enforce the change because they're the only one, only ones that can make that have like a, a strong effect globally or mm. nationally, you know, but it's never going to be by my wife and I like composting our food. You know, it's good. We can do our part and I'm not saying it doesn't matter, mm. but I'm saying, you know, when I get concerned, it's more about on a larger scale and I'm not trying to make this a political, you know, discussion or podcast, but like, the stuff that will really move the needle will be when larger governments step in and enforce a standard. And you see that with with chemicals that, you know, were used for certain clothing that got taken out because they were like, yeah. hey, you're not allowed to do this anymore. It wasn't by someone saying like, I'm not going to buy clothes that use, and there people, no. It's, it's when a larger system came in and said, you can't exist unless you adopt this way. Um, and obviously it was a system that was informed and empowered by, you know, uh, people versus, you know, an individual who just was looking to have their will and exerted upon others to be very Mm. clear. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I still think as uh, consumers, I mean, take uh, uh, tweed. I mean, I refuse to buy tweed that has polyester content and there are brands where I like, I love what they're doing. Uh, would love to buy their garments, but I'm not paying top money or any money, really, as long as it's sort of 70% wool and 30% polyester, which is just oh, yeah. and insane today. And, uh, I mean, even New York's uh, favourite uh, sort of um, heritage menswear brand, I mean, the tweed they're selling now is, really? You could have bought proper yeah. 100% wool. I don't know why they're doing it. Because they're, they're certainly charging enough for their stuff as well. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's, at least for me, like any of the tweet I've ever got is just individual. You know, it's like, well, you're getting something from Fox. And so if you buy from, you know, the makers, where it's like I'm getting bolts of fabric versus buying a, you know, coat, which I recognize is a luxury of itself. Um. Yeah, I mean, voting with your dollar is always pretty effective and good. <laughs> but uh, I think, you know, for strong change, it's how do you make that 
not allowed, you know? Like, I, I never buy any denim with stretch in it. Like, who no, does no. that? Um, you know, I received... A, sometimes people will send me stuff. And it's always tough because I want to be really kind and generous. But sometimes I get sent things from brands that I don't really know or whatever. And that, and you get it, and the product is, like, not something that I would purchase. Um, and I've always tried to, like walk like how do i walk the line of giving that person feedback of like saying that it's not for me but not harming or hindering myself you know like i don't want to look like some asshole yeah you know because sometimes a brand will message me and they're like hey we wanted to send you stuff from this collection like this literally happened they're like hey we know you're not in paris but we wanted to send you some stuff from the collection so you could like take pictures of yourself in it and put it on your social media and I was like, and I just was, you know, I, it was half lie and half truth. But I was like, I'm, I'm sick, which I am. I was like, I, I'm not, I'm not able to do any of that stuff right now. So, like, I don't think I can take advantage of it. And then they fired back, and they were like, Well, hey, well, we'll just send it to you anyway. Do you want it? <laughs> and here's the thing: I'm not high and mighty, but I was just like, it's just going to go to waste on me. And so I was like, hey, I was like, I'm just so overwhelmed with stuff that's going on right now. I was like, you know, thank you so much for the offer. I support you. I'll support you from afar. But I can't, you know, I, I have to respectfully decline. And it was fine. But I always wonder, is the person on the other end reading that email and be like, fuck this guy, you know? <laughs> but I was, because in my head, I'm like, I'm saving you money. You're not paying to ship me anything. You're not paying to give me anything that costs money to make. And it's, it's not for me anyway. So how do, how do I have that relationship? And I recognize it's a very weird thing to say, but like, you know, that happens a lot, you know, because I have a bunch of friends where like they get sent stuff and they're like, cool, here's a picture of it on Instagram. Sell it or toss it. Um, it's interesting though that when that brand con contacted you, they were clear that they wanted you to show it on Instagram. Oh yeah. yeah a lot of the want... time it's just, we want to send you something. It's a gift, but you can sort of sense that they do want something, but they're just not saying what, which causes yeah. extra stress for the person receiving it because uh, they want something. When will it be enough? Yeah, I mean, I got sent some stuff from a company and they sent it to me and it was over the holidays and um, I, wasn't at, I wasn't in town and so someone else had picked up our packages and I forgot to get some of these packages and then I got an email and they were like, hey, we sent you this stuff. We haven't seen it on your social. And I was like, what? And I'm like, oh, I didn't know that was something you wanted me to do. I was like, I still, I was like, and I told him, I was like, I haven't even gotten all my mail from the holidays. You know, this is a while ago. I was like, you know, and I was like, I, I wish you would have told me. I was like, I I'm not, you know, I yeah. will promote the things I really love and care about. But also, I'm a nobody. I want to be very clear. Maybe to like 10 people, they respect my opinion and stuff. But like... I'm not some like billion million follower sort of account where like I moved the needle. So I was just like, what? So I picked up the package. I got it. And I was like, oh man, these don't even fit. <laughs> you know, I'm like, what? And I don't even, you know, and so I was just like, well, so a lot yeah. of stuff I will try to give away to other people. And some, some brands I've messaged them and I'm like, Hey, you gave me this stuff. It was great. I shared it on social. Um, but 
I think it would be best use if I donated it to these other folks who might use it. And surprisingly, you know, people will message back and they're like, great, that's so kind of you, do it. You know, only one time did a brand be like, cool, could you get them to take a picture of it too? And I'm like, really? You want me to like send it to the donation house? And they're like, hey, can you guys take a picture of this? Oh, God. <laughs> Trying to so, <laughs> squeeze double value out of it. <laughs> yeah, I was just like, Ugh. But it's, I, I understand everyone's trying to do their job and I yeah. get it like marketing now as someone who also consults for other brands, you don't really just spend money on a billboard and walk away. You get into everyone's little niche worlds and you have different people who, you know, so maybe I'm the niche elderly millennial father person that Midwestern. they had to check off their box. Yeah, like cold this Midwestern guy. Bald dude, cold basement. Perfect. <laughs> Check. Let's send Super Jeremy niche. some old boots. <laughs> um, uh, now, there's yeah. one expression I keep coming across uh, in things adjacent to what we're doing. It's talk of getting off fits or getting fits off. Yeah, now, okay. Now, now what, what does this really mean? And, and what is a fit that has gotten off? Uh, how do you judge this? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, like any language or phrase, it's tough to trace the roots and everyone kind of adds their two cents into it. So um, I think, so a fit obviously is like your clothes, right? Your outfit, yeah. And, yeah, and so I think it comes from a combination of like to pull something off and to get a fit off. It's like just a way to like, you know, show something that you're wearing, enjoy it, feel good, and uh, and pulling it off, and and sharing it. So, so how do you, you really know. know when when your outfit is got off or whether it's bricked? I mean, uh, I can't tell. The, I look at fit pics and I can't tell. Well, does it make you feel good when you look at it? I mean, it helps if the person is smiling. I think, but I mean, uh, interesting. A lot of stuff. I mean, it's hard to tell. Have you looked at art and saw someone not smiling and thought it was bad art? Not really thought about it in that respect. Yeah. I mean, I, I appreciate craft. Okay. I'm an, I'm an engineer. Uh, anything that has got some real craft in it, I appreciate. Um, yeah. Maybe not sort of impressionistic art. Um, sure. Probably a bit set in the ways I like music as well, but... Yeah. Craft, I like. I think all these things, it's just a way to celebrate, you know, your your self-expression. I mean, the, the words are irrelevant and meaningless, in all honesty. And there's a lot of stuff that people share pics of that they're really proud of that I could care less about. But I'm proud of them expressing themselves. You know, and it kind of zooms backwards. Like, no one's here to judge. And if that's if they're there to judge, like, they're just in the wrong place. Um, and this is not about like blammo or anything, but just like, you know, when people are, but I think it's just a way, you know, it's like, have you ever gone out with a bunch of friends and you all, you're all psyched to get out and you hang out and you get a few drinks or you, whatever you're going to do, you're celebrating, you're all happy. It's basically that it's embracing community in a, in an extremely lonely world. And I think, <laughs> you know, yeah. when you find affinity groups enthusiast groups if you zoom way out to like say like british clubs they were based around certain traditions and certain things that everyone kind of subscribed to and aspired to be like 
and community was formed from it. And so people just like taking pictures of their clothes and being in a place where they're all kind of cheering each other on, it's because they don't have it locally or they don't have it, you know, their local community, air quote, is the digital world that they're existing in and that they're sharing them, that themselves in. And so it's great and it's welcoming and it inspires them and challenges them and helps them grow. And so in a weird way, it's like these little digital clubs that people do. I think the tough thing is if it's not, you know, if it's like you're doing it on Instagram, right? I don't know every single person that follows me. And sometimes people message me and be like, hey, this is wrong. And I used to respond back and be like, I disagree. But now I'm like, who cares? Like, I don't even know you. And we, I am I am at a limit in my life of community and friendship. And I'm very grateful for all the friendships and relationships I have. But I'm I'm constantly striving to be the best person I am to the people that I already know. It's very difficult for me to try to do that for someone I don't even know. Yeah. And then like you know, well, what should I do? Should I call them and be like, well, hey, why don't we set some time on the calendar and let's talk and we can, we can discuss your, your dislike of my sport coat, you know, just like what? So I think all of these things come back to helping someone be comfortable with themselves and create community and friendship from it, you know? So I don't think you should ever be concerned about whether someone got a fit off or not. I think you should only be excited about the things that inspire you. Wise sage words there, Jeremy. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I mean, it's, I, I get it though. I think that's a very engineer mind question to want to understand something when sometimes it is, uh, there's nothing to understand. Mm. It's like joy. I have this irrational thing where Chelsea boots on men, can't stand them. On women, fine. Uh, lots of other articles of clothing. And I, I don't know why it is, but... So when you say, oh, you love your blundstones, I think, oh, Jeremy, you're so wrong. You're so wrong. But I don't call you up about it. Well, I don't... I actually don't own a pair of blundstones. Oh, I'm sure you, you used to, though. Nope, never once no? in my life. Oh, God, that's so good. But I'm not, I would love a pair of Blundstones, but I have enough, you know, aquatic element enduring footwear. Uh, My (laughs) wife wears Blundstones. I do love a Chelsea boot, but I'm, I'm curious where, what's, let's unpack this here. What's, what, what is, what is your uh, disdain for, for uh, a slip on boot? Might be that I find them essentially feminine. You can put loafers in the same category, which is sure to oh, bring in loads I, I have of tons of loafers. Um, I don't like the sort of monk strap shoes or excessively pointy shoes. Yeah, that's fair. Shoes should have a sort of generally foot form. Um, so where my question is, so that is you're viewing these things in an almost somewhat, it sounds to me, I don't want to put words in your mouth, like a black and white situation, right and wrong. Yeah, I mean, uh, curious where the stuff I like, I can like it less or more, but I don't know. It's just uh, it's an irrational thing because I realise that I'm I'm probably in the wrong because loads of people like loafers and they like their Chelsea boots and definitely loads of guys like pointy shoes or squared off toe shoes. I don't think you're in the wrong at all because first first off, 
I think it's fair and fine to double down on your opinion and your feeling. Where things can get actually right and wrong, right? I'm like motioning my hands for people that don't that don't see me. Um, is when you try to implore that or enforce that on others who have a different opinion. Because at the end of the day, it's close. It's just mm. a way to express yourself. You know, but if, if someone, if you walk down the street and you see someone and they're wearing Blundstones and you push that person into oncoming traffic <laughs> and they die and the officer says, sir, why did you murder this man? And you're like, well, his shoes sucked and they weren't for me and I hated him. Then Crimes I'd be like, yeah, all right. Yeah, I'd be like, you know what? That's probably an unhealthy thing you got going on. Uh, but if you just don't care for how someone's expressing themselves, that's fine. Who cares? You know, um, and I think that's good. And I, I think that's that's the, you know, the the problem and opportunity with the Internet is a lot of times people are just trying to find a way to be comfortable with themselves by sharing. I recognize that it's probably incorrect. But people try to be comfortable with themselves by sharing a picture of them publicly. In most cases, it's the dopamine hit of someone liking it and responding to it positively. But what people forget about is in this, you know, this world, you also have people who won't and who don't. And if the criticism is fair and you're inviting that criticism, then you should entertain it. But if you don't want it, you know, then either don't share it. You know, because I think that's the tough thing, too, is, I mean, because this this speaks into tons of things where people are like, I want to talk about something. And someone says, I disagree. And the person says, well, you're wrong. And you're like, well, wait, hold on. (laughs) You can find things to disagree about. Perfect example. My my brother-in-law and I disagree on a gajillion things, but we respect each other. You know, political, clothing, whatever, you name it. But I respect him and I respect his opinion. And I'm never going to try to live my life to change his mind or to force my will upon him. So I think that's that's the thing where it's like, yeah, there's a ton of clothes. There's a ton of clothes that people wear that message me and they're like, hey, what do you think? And I'm always like, it's great. Even if it's something I would never own or wear. Because I, I respect them and support them in whatever they're trying to do. So, but I do recognize where some people are like, no. I need to know what is right and what is wrong. And that's the thing that I'm like, that's a dangerous road because, you know, what is right and wrong? Right? Yeah. So, So, I mean, yeah. Do you have any clothing dislikes that you also realize are irrational? For my body type, yeah. I can't really wear a, a ton of British tailoring or things that are very structured because I'm, you know, I'm already a little bit broad shouldered. Um, it's just not very flattering on my physique. I have a round head. I'm bald. You know, I don't have like, you have more of like a jawline with your head. Um, cause clothing, I mean, when you look at like what's aesthetically pleasing, it just comes back to geometry and how shapes fit together and complement each other. Um, but you know, there were, there were a lot of fashion, like people, like everyone loves Drees and I've never been a Drees guy. But I don't think that they're wrong. I just, it's never sparked my desire. You know, I also love, I love Rothko. I love Mark Rothko. I love his art. I don't understand it. It's big blocks of color. Uh And some people are like, this is ridiculous. This is pathetic. 
who cares? This guy even had a tortured life. You know, he didn't even end his life well. He took his own life. What a shame, et cetera. His art's bad. And I'm like, I don't know. I think there's something there. So that's maybe an irrational like. Sure. Who knows? Unexplained. I don't know. It just speaks to you. The same yeah, way and I, to stroking your hand over a really good Japanese denim. It's just immensely pleasurable. But you can't quite say why. Yeah. And I think that that is the... That's the unknown and probably the thing I love the most about clothes because you're just like, it's, it, you're in a world of, of, you know, rules, but at the end of the day, when you, when you spend all these time trying to understand them and trying to do it, you realize at the end of the day, like we're all just kind of lonely, hollow people looking for friends and community and you end up accidentally finding it through a love of material goods that don't even matter. <laughs> well, it could have been backgammon. Uh, pigeon sure. racing, uh, yeah. something or other. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, I think it's, I think it's, I don't think anyone should feel bad. The big thing I'm trying to communicate is no one should feel bad for not liking something that someone wears. You should only feel bad if you're a dick to that person about what they like and telling them they're wrong. <laughs> you know, like my daughter loves, she loves the music of this kid's TV show called Gabby's Dollhouse. I think that music sounds like shit and I have no <laughs> desire for it. I don't care about it. I think it's pathetic. It's awful. But if if she were to walk in and say, like, you know, Dad, I want to listen to Gabby's Dollhouse, I'd be like, turn it up. I love it because mm. it makes her happy. You know, but if I was like, no, you fucking loser kid, you like this shit music. Why don't we listen to some real stuff so you can learn how to be a true person, you loser? You know, then box set. (laughs) Yeah. Well, which she does love the Beatles. Right. And in my head, I'm like, how can she love the Beatles and love Gabby's dollhouse? I'm like, what an idiot. But she's a six year old kid. And obviously she's not an idiot. I love my daughter dearly. But like, you know, there's there's that sort of mentality in how you respect someone else's opinion or engage with them about their opinion. This seems like a good uh, good place to uh, to wrap it up, uh, Jeremy. Yeah. Uh, anything you'd like to plug at the end? Anything going uh, on? I don't know. Hopefully, if anyone's still listening to me or doesn't hate me yet, um, yeah, you can check out the pod. It's Blamo Podcast. Um, thank you so much for having me. I, I am so apologetic how long it took to make this happen. and uh, But despite my uh, my heavy baritone, you know, congested voice, I hope that this, uh, that this was of value to you because I, I really enjoyed it. It's been excellent, Jeremy. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Bye-bye for now. And that was all for this week's Gomology. Expect a fresh episode next week. Hit subscribe or follow to automatically download next week's episode as soon as it's published. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, I do really appreciate a review or rating. If you listen on Spotify, you can also leave a rating. I keep saying this every week and, you know, People do occasionally surprise me. That's brilliant. Excellent. Cheers me up. If you'd like to get in touch, my email is welldresseddad at gmail.com or welldresseddad on Instagram. There's also a Gomology podcast uh, account on Instagram where you can follow and you see um, the graphic and uh, text about next week's episode as soon as it's out. Again, links and details in the show notes, including a link to the Patreon details. So thanks for that. See you next week. Bye-bye.